Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and this is the Empire and Deep State series that I'm co-hosting with friend of the show, Aaron Good, and American Exception podcast producer, Seamus McGinnis. We have been exploring the book that Aaron wrote. Um, Aaron is a historian and political scientist. His excellent book is called American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. This is part nine. Uh, we've been you know, digging in deep here uh, talking about a lot of interesting concepts of you know the deep state of imperialism hegemony power and in part eight the most recent episode we discussed c wright mills he was a very important sociologist and philosopher and intellectual in the 1950s and uh, died under somewhat strange circumstances very early but we were talking about his book the power elite in the previous part and we're going to continue where we left off. And Aaron, uh, when we left off, we were we were bringing up some of the ideas that uh, C. Wright Mills had raised in his in his book, the, the Power Elite, and in his other writings. We talked, for instance, about his idea of crackpot realism. I think we're going to discuss that more today. Um, we're also going to talk about the relationship between power and secrecy. But I, I think we're the best way to begin this conversation today is to revisit a topic that we briefly addressed, which is the concept of the higher immorality. This is a concept that C. Wright Mills wrote about. So can you talk about uh, C. Wright Mills's conception of the higher immorality and how it, rate, how it relates to power of ruling elites in the United States? Right, this is a concept that if you were going to create a glossary of like sociology or sociological terms, it would be hard to pin down exactly what he's talking about because he sort of elaborates on the, the concept in a number of places in the power elite. And I, I think also in the causes of World War III, he talks about it. But um, he, he, in, in a, one way to summarize it is he, he refers to the higher morality as the divorce of, of uh of, of power and wisdom or of mind from power uh, and the mindlessness of the, of the power elite. And, and what he means is the, he doesn't mean that they are like dumb. It just means that the higher functioning of the human brain, the, the part that like can sort of understand morality and intellectual issues is, it has atrophied in the, in the power structure itself. Uh, and that really what prevails at the top is this higher immorality. So this quote, I think, from Mills is a good way to start with this concept of the, the higher immorality and, and understanding this, this concept as a, as, as a way to explain the, the sort of structural problems of the American power structure. So hopefully this makes some sense here. So let me just let Mills speak for himself. The level of moral sensibility that now prevails is not merely a matter of corrupt men. The higher immorality is a systematic feature of the American elite. Its general acceptance is an essential feature of the mass society. Of course, there may be corrupt men in sound institutions, but when institutions are corrupting, many of the men who live and work in them are necessarily corrupted. In the corporate era, economic relations become impersonal and the executive feels less personal responsibility. Within the corporate worlds of business, war making and politics, private conscience is attenuated and the higher immorality is institutionalized. It is not merely a question of corrupt administration in corporation, army, or state. It is a feature of the corporate rich as a capitalist stratum, deeply intertwined with the politics of the military state. And I'm gonna read another quote related to this concept of the higher immorality. He says, the men of the higher circles are not representative men. Their high position is not a result of moral virtue. Their fabulous success is not firmly connected with meritorious ability. Those who sit in the seats of the high and the mighty are selected and formed by the means of power, the sources of wealth, the mechanics of celebrity, which prevail in their society. They are not men selected and formed by a civil service that is linked with the world of knowledge and sensibility. They are not men shaped by nationally responsible parties that debate openly and clearly the issues this nation now so unintelligently confronts. They are not men held in responsible check by a plurality of voluntary associations which connect debating publics 
with the pinnacles of decision, commanders of power unequaled in human history. They have succeeded within the American system of organized irresponsibility. And so I think that this concept is key to understanding many of the pathologies in our society and in the way that the empire is run in our political system. I mean, we know that any position that has prestige or, or platform, you know, any part of our uh, institutions and organizations that are more prestigious and, and powerful, uh, we can reflexively be usually correct, almost always correct, that like it, whoever, like if you don't know who the next national security advisor is going to be, for example, in the United States, you, you already know that the way that the power structure is that whoever is going to get into that position is going to be somebody who has accepted the prevailing uh, imperial immorality that uh, really is the lodestar for uh, the, the powerful in this country. Okay, this I, this this extolling of expediency above all else, and uh, the evaluation of you know the, the the proper versus improper course of action on the basis of how much it actually helps uh, the people who are already very powerful and wealthy. This is just this the the, the overriding uh, theme of the the U.S. power structure. It's to the point that you can almost you you can. Be, you can hardly go wrong by saying all these people in these positions of power that you, that because they have attained this success in, in this country, that they must be, you know, terrible people uh, more in, in some regards, in, in fundamental regards. It's it's like and this is a conundrum of Western of civilization. Um, but I think in Western civilization, it's a particular facet of it. It kind of goes back to you could trace it the discussion of this back to uh, Plato's Republic um, with, with Socrates and Thrasymachus arguing and Thrasymachus is kind of cynical and he says, ah, you know, justice is really just like whatever serves the powerful. And Socrates tries to make some sort of argument out of both sides of his mouth or he has Plato has, uh, Plato has Socrates do this, right? It's Plato's fictionalized version of him. Um, and so, so it's like Thrasymachus is the more realistic person saying that, you know, anybody, the, the justice such as it is, is really just a function of like power and domination. And then Socrates doesn't want to acknowledge this because he knows that to acknowledge that, not because it's wrong, but to acknowledge it is to go against like the myths of the place, right? And so this is very similar to what we experience here in the United States at this point. The the, the democratic parts of our state are just so useless. And so, but the politicians are supposedly in a, in a democratic society to where they're supposed to make arguments that they're like serving the interests of the people, uh, the majority of the people, when it's very obvious to anyone and even political scientists can now like show this quantitatively that they are only responding to the super rich. They're only responding to the people who least need to be advocated and worked for, you know, and represented. Uh, and this probably finds this idea of the higher immorality, I think, finds its ultimate expression in the exception, uh, which is just to say that you must you must have outcomes that you want. OK, and democracy could get in the way of that. So you're going to just declare an emergency to allow the regime to act uh, as it wants when it needs to covertly. And it's not that. Everything in the U.S. is covert operations all the time, repair politics all the time. Okay, it's that it, it gives the regime a veto power over democracy, and so um, you have these institutions that are set up to control the political system and political outcomes and manage things as though it was a dictatorship, even though it's a democracy. And we get glimpses of this in some ways. I mean, the higher immorality, if you want to think of like, are there any anecdotes that show how the people who are in high places are not there because of virtue or meritorious conduct? The Dennis Hastert example, I think I mentioned this on True and On a couple of days ago, uh, is just so instructive and kind of horrifying. You have a guy, Dennis Hastert, who was a, a troll, not a very charismatic or especially astute person, uh, and he became Speaker of the House, and it eventually emerges that he was extremely corrupt, uh, up to being a, up to and including being a pedophile, like a wrestling coach at a school and a pedophile. And 
when you factor in things that we know about like Epstein or the Bobby Baker scandal back in the 60s or Craig Spence and the Franklin scandal, um, and, you know, out in Nebraska and so on, you see all of the these this sexual blackmail aspect of the U.S. regime. It also features in Watergate a lot. Um, and this is you have to conclude that Dennis Hastert was able to become the third most powerful politician in the United States, at least in terms of the succession for the presidency, uh, not in spite of being a pedophile, but like that, that was presumably uh, one of his main assets to help him succeed uh, in this place because it, he was such a corrupted individual uh, that he was firmly under control of these very dark forces that are, are pretty much personify or uh, encapsulate the higher morality. Okay, that this is, I, I can't think of a better example than this. Uh, and this story, the Hastert thing is like, it, it came and went and it should have been a huge story that we talked about and, and it should have led to bigger discussions on how something like this was possible. And then that could have led to, uh, you know, an exploration of the role of sexual blackmail in our political economy, and it never did. Uh, and that's because it goes against the myths of, uh, of American democracy. The, the higher immorality is, incompa is incompatible with, with democracy uh, and transparency and so on. And so this gets resolved in the exception. And then somebody like Dennis Hastert almost seems like his career is based on this kind of material. Like the fact that the state is allowed to operate in this way and powerful forces are allowed to operate in this way uh, means that you can institutionalize and almost personify these dynamics in certain, certain individuals. Uh, and it's, it's something that delegitimizes the regime. And this way we need to understand it. And maybe more people will start to grasp how things got this bad in a country that has so many uh, things going for it in terms of like material abilities and technology and, and human resources that they could draw from. How do we end up with Dennis Hastert uh, being the Speaker of the House in the 21st century? It's, it's pretty astounding. Yeah. And, and something very interesting about that uh, is that the, the ultimate irony is that now Republicans are using this, they're popularizing this idea of like being a groomer, right? Dennis Hastert himself was the longest serving Republican Speaker of the House. He was a Republican. He was an evangelical Christian who talked about conservative values and all of that. Well, he's, of course, a pedophile and sex trafficker. I mean, it, it really shows the the double-sided, blatantly hypocritical nature of the U.S. ruling class. And to be a little fair, I mean, it's easy to point out the hypocrisy and crimes of Republicans. A person in your book that you you discuss as someone who's an example of the higher morality is Samantha Power. She is the Democrat example. Samantha Power is a so-called liberal interventionist. She uses this rhetoric of humanitarianism and you know, uh, R2P responsibility to protect, to defend all of these wars around the world, pushing for this kind of neoconservative foreign policy, but using like liberal rhetoric to advance objectively right-wing interests. So, I mean, those are two clear examples of this concept of higher morality, a Republican and a Democrat, and two very powerful figures in the U.S. government. So we're talking about some of these more extreme examples of the higher immorality I think it's important to point out that not every value has been debased under this regime of higher immorality among the elites. There has to be some replacement system uh, because they don't just, you know, it's not purely amoral. Um, but as you point out in the book, it's not that every value has been debased. There's just one value left, and it is the infinite acquisition of money as a value in itself and as a virtue in itself. It's sort of a we see that with things like, you know, grind set culture and everything are these sort of secularized Protestant ethic that comes out as as what Mills calls the higher morality. But to people, uh, you know, under that ideology, it just seems like life as normal. It's the Horatio Alger ethic of of just bootstraps capitalism. And people are able to tell themselves a story that by succeeding within that system, they are virtuous. It's sort of, again, like a secular prosperity gospel type thing that they've constructed. But you point out that under that regime, there has to be these, these forms of social reproduction. So things like how much you're willing to be subject to self-cooptation, 
and how these networks kind of form into cliques. And then lastly, the way that younger people have to conform to the image of success that's put on them by their elders and by the people who are leading their organizations. And so these create this, quote, shift in the virtues that are enabling you to succeed. But Mills thinks that your success just reveals the principles of the men who get to anoint the successful. And so what that brings us to is this new point of elite decline, where there's starting to be a separation between knowledge and power. So Sam Power is just one example of that. And we're pointing to, again, these sort of extremes. But how has that elite decline come about? And, and what does it look like now, 70 years later, after Mills was writing about that? Right. He wrote at the time that the elites were not like the elites of old. Uh, whatever you think of Thomas Jefferson, and of course, he's a, a problematic character in a number of ways, but he was a literate person who was a, a, a figure of the Enlightenment, with all of its contradictions, and he dabbled in philosophy and, and science and so on, and was a cultivated man of learning, such as one could be in the 1700s, right? But at the, there's been a decline that was evident to Mills even in the 1950s, and uh, it's only gotten worse because the higher immorality has been even further enshrined in this, in this whole system. So he points out that they're less learned today, less culturally enlightened, and that there's really no unity between knowledge and, and power anymore. If the, if the power elite encounters intellectuals or, or makes use of them in any way, it's as hired people. Okay, and Mills is always saying hired men, right? Everything in Mills is about men because it was men who were running everything back then. And some people have, especially liberals that want to critique Mills, they say, uh, like, there's a, some really funny articles from the 90s where some like kind of nerdy liberals uh, and progressive types are saying like, well, Mills was wrong about this and he didn't take race into account and so on. But what's a, what, I, what I think is pretty amazing about Mills is you can read it and yeah, he does have the sensibilities of someone in the 1950s in terms of like, he's not a, a you know, a woke person at all and he kind of by default talks about men and he doesn't really talk about race very much but what's really amazing about this is that his analysis of the of the power structure is still so true even with those kind of omissions or, or you know problems with his with his writing such as it is to where it, it to me really hammers home that the the primary contradictions of our time and, the, and the, the big things that we should be focused on, the most overriding despotic structures are, or, or aspects are imperialism and capitalism. That it doesn't really matter that you have, uh, that you bring some tokenism into these really corrupt institutions. Like it, it's not going to matter the gender of the corrupt person who is, uh, in a position of power because they're not going to get into that position of power unless they are, you know, a deeply immoral person who is able to project uh, a false image of themselves. And, and that really, that, that co-optation and kind of phoniness of success is, it, it has come to define the power elite such as it is. Um, and this ha has culminated in our present time. I mean, these, these guys do not even seem especially shrewd anymore. Uh, that are running things. And I think it's because what they want is basically impossible and insane, which is global hegemony forever and hegemony over dominance over the U.S. population and a sort of constant uh, crushing of any sort of democratic uh, efforts and reforms in the United States. And these are not things that you, that very, uh, um, that great people would want to be a part of. You know, it, it's just you wouldn't want to do this. But and even if you were a decent person, then you wouldn't rise in these hierarchies in the first place. So this helps to explain why we are not a meritocracy at all. We're, uh, we're a demeritocracy and uh, the, where people who are possessed of like, you know, some terrible human characteristics and, uh, and immorality are the ones who are rewarded uh, with power, wealth, and prestige in this society. This is a late empire. This is what it looks like. And Mills was was right on about this very early. And uh, it's, again, it's something that's only more true now than it was even in his time. Aaron, another thing that you emphasize a lot throughout your book, American Exception, and that, of course, C. Wright Mills emphasized back in The Power Elite in 1956, was the 
close relationship between power and secrecy. Of course, we've talked a lot about the role of covert operations, which are inherently supposed to be secret or secretive at least. And uh, a key part of the idea of the deep state of the kind of privatization of the security apparatus in the United States is secrecy. So in C. Wright Mill's conception, he could see this back in the 1950s, right when the CIA was still pretty new, a decade old. Uh, talk about his conception of the relationship between power and secrecy. Well, he pointed out that the power elite in America would typically operate with within organizations that already existed. Okay, so other organizations had arisen within and without the government, but and they could, they, they were either organizations that had influence from the top of the power structure to begin with, and so they were probably already pretty compatible with power elite, uh, you know, aims and, and motives. Uh, but additionally, the power elite have so much wealth and money at their disposal that they can even things, even other organizations that they might not have been too focused on, they can take over and dominate when they want to. And so uh, they will create them, but, but they will create them when they need to. They'll create new organizations. And when the U.S. went for a global empire, they had to create some new organizations because this was new in the American experience. And the uh, things that the organ parts of the federal government that had been running foreign policy in the past were just not sufficient for this. However, you did have right before the Cold War, you had World War II, which itself led to the creation of, you know, a large military bureaucracy. So, and even an intelligence service, the OSS, you know, a lot of those people are the ones that went on to run the CIA or advocated for the CIA to be created in the first place. So they, they created things like the National Security Council in, with the 1947 uh, National Security Act. Uh, they created the International Monetary Fund near the end of World War II to handle uh, the international payments problems uh, that, would, that would arise with this new system that America was going to uh, preside over. Uh, they created the United Nations to handle international disputes in, in, in some kind of large international forum that was, of course, centered around the U.S. and in, in, in New York City even. Um, they, well, they created, and, and, of course, rooted in the League of Nations, which was just a, you know, an old boys club of the imperial powers. And even that didn't really work because of in the U.S. it never got ratified because it was considered to be like um, something that could impose or, or trespass on, on U.S. sovereignty to decide whenever the U.S. wanted to go to war, didn't want to go to war. So it was opposed by imperialists like famously Henry Cabot Lodge, the, the guy who was perhaps most responsible for the Spanish-American War from an elite Boston Brahmin family uh, whose fortunes came from the opium traffic. This is the guy that tanked the League of Nations. So these, these institutions are always imperfect. But even then, the, the U.S. runs into problems with them. So the U.S. has a bigger role than anybody else in designing these things, potentially more input into the League of Nations and the United Nations than anyone else. But the U.S. will not even uh, really conform to whatever rules it sets out because the U.S. has to remain uh, in a state of exception. They, have to, they cannot bend international law. And even if they ratify the U.N. Treaty, which was ratified you know, by the Senate, which outlaws aggression, the UN Charter outlaws aggression, and the US violates this all the time. So these institutions are created, but they're ultimately only as strong as the, the power to uh, compel powerful actors to uh, obey the, the rules that they lay out. Uh, and the power elite can create and can be behind the creation of something like the United Nations. And then when it's inconvenient to actually follow the rules that they pretty much made themselves, then they'll just not follow those rules. And they'll just call it the liberal rules-based international order, right? Which is just, uh, you know, code for uh, America does whatever it wants. And, uh, it, you know, if you don't like it, you can lump it. And, you know, if you complain too much, we, you might be next. So that's, that seems to be the way that it operates. Now, the, the secrecy aspect of this, because it's also, you know, it goes against the, the myths of the United States, the PR, the propaganda that the U.S. wants to put out about itself. You need uh, you need secrecy for this. So this is where and, and Mills and Mills points out in the privately incorporated permanent world war economy, the national security, such as it is, depends on having all these secret plans and goals. And that because of uh, the, the state secrecy and the fact that Mills is trying to understand these decisions and understand these decision makers, and yet he is limited in what he can see. But instead of saying that, like, well, because I'm limited in what I can see, I'm just going to take their public pronouncements 
and the editorials in the New York Times at face value and assume that like I've got to somehow base my ideas of reality on these things because other there's just these other things I don't know. He focuses on the secrecy itself, which I think is something that we all should should do. And not assume, we should assume at this point that we're being lied to and that a lot of decisions are being made in, in secrecy. Now, that doesn't mean that we should fill in these blank spots with like things that are crazy or irresponsible or unreasonable, but we do need to understand that the sheer level of secrecy that uh, among the, the powerful and powerful actors in the United States is a, is a very serious thing uh, that we need to understand and hash out the implications of. So he said that because of the secrecy, the power elite is likely not altogether surfaced. And he kind of contradicts himself here, but you can appreciate why in 1956 when there was so little that was known. So he says, uh, somewhat contradictorily, uh, there's nothing hidden about it, although its activities are not publicized, and that there's nothing conspiratorial about it, although its decisions are often publicly unknown and its mode of operation manipulative rather than explicit. So I write, while this can be stated about the elite as a collective, Mills does not acknowledge an important implication of his analysis. The structural processes he has elaborated have, in conjunction with organizational secrecy, given rise to organizations comprised of members of the power elite in which conspiracy is essentially institutionalized. To some extent, his caution is understandable. Many of the historic events, which most dramatically support his theoretical framework, were unknown to Mills due to the very secrecy he was attempting to illuminate. So I, I think that he is essentially saying things that are a bit contradictory. He's saying there's nothing conspiratorial about it. It's just that they're doing all these things secretly and they're very manipulative <laughs> rather than like deliberative or, or, or whatever. Uh, and so he, he's, he's basically like describing a conspiracy and then he's, or a conspiratorial uh, milieu while saying, I'm not talking about a conspiracy. So even then you can sense like the early proto version of the conspiracy theory taboo in Mills's own work, because he's describing something that is kind of where a sort of institutionalization of conspiratorial operations. Um, but that, so it's, it's, he's not talking about pure conspiracy all the time. He's talking about conspiracy as a facet uh, and, and secrecy, overriding secrecy as a facet of this new regime and power structure that was emerging. Um, and that he also says that the power elite more or less view the public and other people who would oppose them as children. And they figure that somebody's got to be running things anyway. It's, it's always been that way. It's got to be us. These are the sort of, these are the ways he tries to explain the, the, the way that they might rationalize these things among themselves which I, I think probably still holds true to this day. On that point about the power elite viewing the public as, as children, uh, in the end, there are still people making decisions and Mills sees those people as the crackpot realists. So what does he mean by crackpot realism and what utility does that serve for us today? Crackpot realism is one of those enduring phrases of Mills that uh, I, I are going to be around forever and they seem only more relevant with time. And again, these are things he kind of references in, in passing and then will we'll periodically say things throughout his book about it. So you can kind of piece these together uh, to, to come up with an idea of what he's talking about. And if you read them more, then, these, then you'll, you'll see these things appear more often. So he, I'm going to read one passage here. In crackpot realism, a high-flying moral rhetoric is joined with an opportunist crawling among a great scatter of unfocused fears and demands. The expectation of war solves many problems of the crackpot realists. Instead of the unknown fear, the anxiety without end, some men of the higher circles prefer the simplification of known catastrophe. They know of no solutions to the paradoxes of the Middle East and Europe, the Far East and Africa, except the landing of Marines. They prefer the bright, clear problems of war as they used to be, for they still believe that winning means something, although they never tell us what. Now, for me, I think that this rings true in a number of, of ways. Uh, it, the, the, the rhetoric that you hear uh, the U.S. Uh, about our enemies is so overwrought. And uh, it, it's, it's all geared towards like the objectives of, of imperial hegemony always. And it's a constant exercise in, in PR and, and propaganda and manipulation. 
And for the people that are running things, the people that are running the war machine, the people that are running the you know, intertwined economic exploitation machine with the U.S. military that, that backs it and so on, uh, this sort of system and way of going at the, the rest of the world has come to define their, their reality. They see this as a, the idea of pursuing a different course in, in the U.S. in terms of grand strategy is beyond their comprehension. The idea that you would go away from imperial hegemony to something else, and they don't even, it's hard to say that they, how they think about it in themselves. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that imperial hegemony, you know, with without really restraints in terms of morality, except for like what would actually be bad for the U.S., you know, in terms of making it look bad, like when it would be more causing more problems than it was worth to do something evil. Like these are it, that those are the main restraints and that they don't entertain the idea. You cannot rise really talking about even about confronting this or changing this or speaking about it honestly. It's the, what go, if, if you, you look back into the 1940s and Henry Wallace talking about the century of the common man, that is still very relevant today. Or is it going to be the American century of Henry Luce? Is it going to be the U.S. leadership, which is, of course, really just a euphemism for imperial hegemony, like maintaining an order that aggrandizes the most powerful uh, people in the United States and allows for corporate power to accumulate ever more wealth uh, and dominance over society. Um, and they don't seem to have a plan B. There does not seem to be anyone saying what Henry Wallace was saying. The only people saying it, things like that, are the Chinese, like Xi Jinping's, some of his comments recently, when China talks about win-win relations with the rest of the world. Um, this multipolar world is the it is more or less what Henry, it is very compatible with what Henry Wallace was talking about. And it's the thing that can't be discussed openly in the in the United States political system. Nobody, even Bernie Sanders, when you look at how he was running, he did not speak candidly about US foreign policy or imperialism at all. Um, he sort of made some sort of change in the 90s where he, he supported the Yugoslavian war. Um, he was, he did have, if you look at older clips of Bernie, he had better uh, stuff on foreign policy in the past than he does in recent years. You know, he, he sort of Russiagated himself anyway. He didn't like stand up to Russiagate. He didn't uh, focus on these actors, and even he was too far to the left. So it, nobody, of, uh, as yet, has really talked about radically reorienting U.S. foreign policy, uh, and not even Bernie Sanders. And if you if you follow on Twitter or elsewhere, this guy Matt Duss, who uh, was Bernie's main foreign policy guru, I mean, he's just uh, a more cagey. He, he essentially believes a lot of the same nonsense that like Sam Power and the neocons believe. Uh, he has in he in no way is candid about what the U.S. empire is really all about, and so this the crackpot realism is like if you don't believe that if you don't subscribe to this whole insane worldview of how uh, things should be then you're not a serious person you're an unserious person in the U.S. foreign policy establishment and federal government and the U.S. political system even in the media sphere, uh, and this is the way that crackpot realism is. It's really hegemonic in the United States in terms of the way that that foreign policy is discussed. Even the like sort of mild critiques of the restrainers, as they might be called, the like people that are within the establishment, but that are saying like, hey, we should be 21, 20% less criminal or something like that. Like this is such a mild version of it. Like places like the, the Quincy Institute are, are just basically sort of voicing their concerns. Like maybe this isn't, the, maybe we should be a little more cautious. There's not this critique of the whole criminal enterprise, which is really what we need at this point. And that's because they're, the crackpot realism is so powerful that uh, it's, it's the people that are trying to have any foothold in the establishment or in respectability don't even want to confront it. And so this is the, this is the way that it persists despite being so terrible and pretty easy to explain by and large and against most people's morality and common sense and so on. And yet this is what we get all the time. We get crackpot realism, imperial hegemony uh, ad infinitum. Yeah. And then, of course, we saw what happened to John F. Kennedy, who also he wasn't a socialist. He wasn't like a diehard anti-imperialist, but he did want some kind of restraint. He was thinking about ending the war in Vietnam, peace with Cuba, potentially peace with the Soviet Union. And and we saw the consequences. I mean, even for that matter, we saw what happened when, uh, you know, Nixon pursued detente with the Soviet Union and normalized relations with China. 
I mean, it's simply not tolerated. But uh, another point that C. Wright Mills had had made, uh, of course, he wrote The Power Elite in in 1956, and he died in 1962. So he died before he could see a lot of these things that he accurately predicted. But he emphasized the role of crackpot realism in threatening World War III. And, uh, you know, I think we can see this very clearly today where we're on the precipice of something like a World War III. We see that the U.S., the European Union and NATO are basically waging a, a kind of war on Russia, a proxy war via Ukraine, an economic war. The U.S. is now trying to start a war with China over Taiwan. And as far back as the 1950s, we saw that C. Wright Mills was warning about this arrogant imperialist attitude, the idea of crackpot realism and how it could very, in a very real way, threaten World War III. Yeah, his the 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 part of the the causes of World War Three. He states this very clearly. He says the causes of World War Three will be the preparation for World War Three, and he wrote that in 1958. And everything that he describes was pretty much came to pass in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it was just kind of a miracle that it didn't lead to a nuclear exchange and and luck. It was it was luck and the determination of Khrushchev and Kennedy, and then some of the people around them, and even some people on the ground, you know, Vasily Arkhipov, the political officer on a submarine that the U.S. was dropping depth charges on, and so on, something like that, and they had a nuclear warhead, and they thought that the war had already broken out, and so one of the guys was going to launch the nuclear missile, a tactical nuke, uh, that, that would have taken out a lot of uh, U.S., uh, you know, military forces there in the water, and uh, likely led to a nuclear exchange, and there were already nukes on the island that the Soviets didn't uh, tell the U.S. about. There were tactical nuclear weapons there that could that, that would have been used in the event of an invasion. They were authorized to use. The U.S. didn't know this. So people like LeMay were like, we'll invade. And then Kennedy, Kennedy says to LeMay, well, what do you think they'll do if we invade? And LeMay says nothing. Right. But we know now that like that would have led to nuclear war. Like those guys almost got everybody killed. Curtis LeMay almost, you know, ended human civilization. Perhaps you would have had a nuclear exchange, perhaps nuclear winter. Uh, none of us, we, we wouldn't be here today if LeMay had prevailed and really everybody in that, in the Kennedy group of people that were advising, except for Kennedy himself and Robert Kennedy and uh, Robert and McNamara, who was following Kennedy's orders. And this gets resolved when Robert Kennedy talks to, you know, a Soviet uh, ambassador or so, sort of go between and says, my brother's not sure that, uh, if this if the if this persists, he won't be overthrown by the military. That's what they told me. Said like these guys are are nuts. They could stage a coup against my brother. Uh, he's under a lot of pressure, and they try to get the message out to the Soviets that this is not entirely under the control of the president, and things could spiral out if we don't uh, come to some sort of understanding here. And in the end, this was it was damaging to Khrushchev. Khrushchev was seen as uh, I think they said he shit the bed, like what was what one of the communists said about him in the Soviet Union. And he gets removed shortly after this. It's sort of perceived as a failure on the part of Khrushchev. And uh, with Kennedy dead, when K and Kennedy gets killed for this, I mean, this Bay of Pigs thing or this Bay of Pigs thing, the Cuban Missile Crisis business was all considered the last straw. I mean, when he was talking about how there could potentially be a seven days in May scenario in the United States. He says, well, if there's a, a Bay of Pigs event, the military might start asking some questions. And then if there's a second Bay of Pigs, they may start asking more. Is this guy right for the job? And then if there were a third Bay of Pigs, well, who knows what they might do? And who knows what part of democracy they would claim to be serving, right? He, he says all these things. And this has to be thought of as a, like a third Bay of Pigs uh, for, for these people. On top of the fact he was talking about ending the Cold War, he was saying explicitly, we do not need a Pax Americana based on American weapons of war. Okay, that is a as succinct a refutation of the American, you know, post World War II creed as, as you could come up with. And uh, then he gets he gets his head exploded for, for these things, for confronting these people, even though they really should all be thanking them. And, you know, they owe their lives to people like LeMay and LeMay's grandchildren, like if LeMay had had his way and he carried the day, uh, they, we'd all be dead or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have been born. Um, but this is the, this is the, the power of this, this regime and how you can institutionalize crazy and let's just say evil ideas 
and they can prevail to the point that like no that that reasonable ideas can hardly get a word in edgewise. Like I, I think that that describes it. It almost led to World War III, and the same thing is sort of happening now. The idea is like this mindless expansion of U.S. power to as far into the former Soviet sphere of influence as possible brought us to the Ukraine war. I mean, you put missiles all over the place, uh, in expanded NATO up to the borders, tried to take over the Middle East, tried to go into Central Asia, you know, the whole, the whole 9-11 global war on terror really is related to this whole expansion of U.S. military power and a tip to get hegemony over Eurasia, and they failed. Uh, and their nightmare is coming true as far as like Eurasia and the Belt and Road Initiative uniting all these things. But like they don't have a plan B because they never wanted to accommodate other countries to allow other peoples to prosper. Um, and, and this was this is the power of these ideas when all the money and power is flowing into certain circles and certain uh, people with the different mindset of like dominance and wealth, then they can institutionalize it and make it. Uh, they, they they can create this whole cosmology that if you don't accept it, you're never going to rise into a position of power. And so it, the, the power structure can become, you know, close to 100% rotten, uh, a few outliers notwithstanding. The saving grace potentially is that these people are human. As it's easy to point out their inhumanity and to focus on it, but they are they are human and we have to hope that that at some point, if it comes down to it, that may prevail rather than uh, it, it, it not prevailing and us leading to, uh, you know, a nuclear con confrontation that'll kill us all. So yeah, Aaron, you were talking about that sort of the elite cosmology that has made this possible. And that almost brought us to the brink of World War Three and continues to. And I think there's a really great quote from the book that talks about this and, and refers to the utility of Mills's work today. And you write that today, Mills's judgment rings prophetic to those who look aghast at humanity's inability to respond to global warming, to stop the policy of endless regime change campaigns, or to dismantle the nuclear doomsday machine that threatens humanity with extinction. And to uh, again, we've talked a lot about conspiracy and the way that um, the, the elite cosmology that we're talking about is able to sort of obscure what it is that they're doing in the institutionalized form of conspiracy. You write right after that. Platitude and dogma are so widely accepted as to legitimize leaders. No countervailing worldview is able to prevail against the paranoid airsets cosmology of crackpot realism. Capitalism is depicted as utopian. Nuanced understandings of events are supplanted by the fog of propaganda. And I think that that whole passage gets at everything that we're talking about in this series and everything that you're covering in the book in terms of our inability to respond to crises and in general, the way that sensibility and, and sense making under this other, under this regime of the power elite is sort of subject to, again, I was saying earlier, they're not necessarily nihilistic, but there is a sort of nihilistic denialism. And they want people to believe that nothing better is possible, that what is already here is, is sort of endlessly and inevitably heading towards utopia if you just give it enough time. And so all they can offer is is platitudes. And obviously, I mean, you worked on the Obama campaign. No one did it better than Obama. But, you know, we have people who just straight up borrow or or, or plagiarize Obama like, like Pete Buttigieg. And it's so pervasive at this point that that's the only offering that there is. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, we just have to we're left with no choice but to make meaning out of what we can. And so we get these sort of cult followings of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of political leaders like Obama or Trump. And that's just going to continue to grow because it gives us some sense of agency or some sense of, of meaningful connection to our political system that isn't going to come from the rhetoric itself because it's so devoid of content. And it isn't going to come from actual agency and action because the whole point is paralysis. And the whole point is our is our inability to react to these crises, but it's starting to backfire on them. So we've talked a lot about mainstream political science, but how can Mills's work help us correct some of the weaknesses of political science? Well, the weaknesses of political science are very large, and I don't think that that is an accident. I think that there are two disciplines in the U.S. Academy that are, uh, social science and history are not very good in, in general, and probably even creative writing and MFA programs have been 
distorted and messed up by capitalism and neoliberal influences as well. Political science is particularly bad, you know, well, along and with economics. economics. I mean, <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's because really when you think about Snake it, oil. what is, what is, what is the part of the, that is non-negotiable for the ruling class? It's political economy. And so it makes sense that the study of politics and the study of economics and the study of political economy, which sort of bridges them has to be, uh, nonsense. Okay. You have to like somehow uh, corral human curiosity and inquiry into useless directions. Okay. And this is done in the post-war world through, I think, foundations and, and, and uh, journal, the control of journals in particular ways, uh, privileging of research methods for giving out grants and such. Like all of these things allow for manipulation of political science and social science in general and uh, have shaped the way that political science goes about looking at these things. So the mainstream of political science does not look at the possibility of elite networks subverting democracy as a whole, at least not very seriously. It's very fringe. There are some dual state theorists who look at securitization and how it's diminished democracy in some respects. And then really writing a long time ago, really starting, I think even like in the 40s, was uh, Harold Laswell and this idea of a garrison state. And he kind of hashed out how uh, a, a situation of mobilizing people for total war would transform uh, democracy. And the way that Laswell predicted it was that the military man would, uh, because security was so important, he would supplant, the, he, would sub, he would subordinate the corporate man to his his will. So he saw the corporations and political power, economic power is important, but that military would, would prevail. So I think that he was wrong in that respect. It, you end up with the military being subordinated to the corporate power, but the constant state of war is necessary for the corporate man to have the sort of top down power that he needs. And so the U S and the military, the, the U S corporate elite and the military, they need the U S to be in this position of sort of constant conflict and always with adversaries that the U.S. has to mobilize against so that the U.S. Uh, ruling class can basically wipe out its opposition around the globe. Um, th and this is, this is how it really unfolded. It's a different kind of fascism. I've said before that uh, the, the German fascism uh, had st combined state and corporate power because that's pretty much fascism, right? Uh, that, and that the uh, state was the senior partner under Nazism well, the American version, the Alan Dulles kind of fascism, uh, really has the corporation and corporate man as really steering the ship, and then the military man is subordinated to them. So they sort of disagree over who are the junior and senior partners, uh, the, the German variant of fascism and the American one. Uh, and so the American one tries to have a little bit more of a uh, democratic veneer, whereas the Nazis didn't do very much uh, to protect the pretense of democracy. Uh, in their society before they, they were overthrown. Now, Mills uh, explained the, the sociology of the American power structure. He talked about structural immorality, okay? And this is the kind of thing that you can't put into political science. It's not that Mills was a moralist and he just wanted to talk about like moral issues or norms, but even this kind of uh, analysis is anathema to political science because they would say, oh, you're talking about norms. We don't really do norms. Norms are like, it, like it's somehow you're losing your objectivity if you talk about anything touching on these things. And the point is that I don't want to talk about morality and right and wrong and just write some sort of treatise on moral behavior and you know become sort of some kind of Christian social scientist and historian. It's that you're talking about a, a, a mindset and a sensibility that prevails in the power structure. And so if that's the kind of thing that influences decision-making, then it's something you need to understand. Political science does not have the tools to understand these things very well. Even their constructivist ideas about this, which might have some useful applications, end up being not especially in, insightful uh, in, in terms of figuring out what is, is going on. Um, he, he saw that secrecy and propaganda were such triumphs for the elite that they allowed for top-down rule, uh, and that this allowed the state to become I mean, this isn't Mills. This is me sort of building on Mills's insights. The state becomes kind of holographic. It's defined by its enemies. So the U.S. and all the things that the state is doing, the state is taking action. They're able to define, the state is able to define itself 
with reference to its enemies, not by its own essence. So it's not really discussed in America. It's basically, we, just, we talk about democracy and the presidential horse races and so on and act like that's what's really determining the way that we're governed, right? But it's not, and, and that whatever the security services are doing and so on, this is like, this is national security and you shouldn't mess with that. You shouldn't try to look too closely because you, you need them on that wall. You need them out there, right? Um, so in Mill's power elite is, is, I mean, it was a real challenge to political science. It was basically... It's a broadside at the whole discipline and people like Robert Dahl, uh, you know, he, he, he wrote about pluralism and how it was like, you know, this, this way of trying to explain politics in America as pluralism and Mills pretty much falsifies all of this. Um, he, he pointed out that it was elites that got to build this whole world. Uh, and this gets borne out by history. We know about the war and peace studies project that I talk about all the time. Bretton Woods was created by the United States the National Security Council and the CIA are created by elites to operate and exercise political power uh, irresponsibly and in secrecy. Now, so this is where Mills and his understanding of uh, the ability of, of power and wealth to and the organizations and the social media uh, at the, that, that presides there, that these things were essentially negating democracy and they made pluralism kind of a joke. And if you were going to carry out analysis and scholarship as though we lived in a democratic pluralist society and you were just going to look at different public opinion indicators to try to like figure out anything meaningful about politics, you're missing the overriding influence of, of wealth and power in determining political outcomes, even down to shaping public opinion uh, and determining what people think in the first place. So the way my friend and colleague, Lance DeHaven-Smith described this was, Political scientists, it's like they're sitting by a river and they're just looking at all of this shit floating down the river and they're analyzing it and they're weighing it, taking notes on it, trying to perform regression analysis on it, but they never are looking upstream at where the shit is coming from. <laughs> and so they're perpetually just doing meaningless work. Uh, and, you know, Lance had a real way of explaining these things. Uh, but I think he, that's the gist of it. This was just it. These guys are, um, they, they just want to run regression analysis on, on things. And uh, it's the output of American political science. If, if we're ever able to advance to a, a different kind of better sort of civilization, people will look at like what political scientists were doing, you know, post-World War II and, you know, especially into the 21st century and be like, you guys were, you're, you were failing. Your one job was to explain politics and, and you were, terrible at it and shame on you <laughs> and you're you weren't the ones making the decisions and doing all of this but you, you kind of helped them by being so bad at your job um and and that so so mills is a corrective to that people should go back go back and read him because he still holds up to this day um the the pluralism paradigm is sort of implicit in political science and the way that it operates it doesn't make sense to carry out these sort of methodological uh you know uh, different techniques if you don't live in a pluralist society but we don't live in a pluralist society so that's why it's so it's so bad and Aaron, um, i'm sure Aaron, i'm sure all of your political science professors really loved you but, you know <laughs> they, they the the discipline themselves if you talk to a lot of people i mean a lot of the people are like true believers and okay those were the ones i gravitated towards other people kind of try to do meaningful work and they're smart guys and good guys a, a, a lot of them but it's they understand that like this is the vocation they chose. And like any other vocation, you have to conform to the standards that prevail and the norms that prevail. And so they, they're, they're often of a kind of split personality about it. Or they might try to talk about these things, but do it if you do it in language that's super, uh, you know, full of acad academies and, and so on then you can say more things because it's like, it's no, not that many people are going to read it. And you, it's a way to sort of subvert expectations. So it's actually, there's a lot better, a lot more good and smart people in the discipline itself. It's just kind of the, the, the dynamics that Mills points to. It's just like the, the way that you have to, to rise in them automatically makes you conform to these things. So you cannot but be this way. But I had one professor who, was very straight laced and liked all these like experimental designs and so on. And just in conversation with him, I was talking about some sort of political issue or something. And he just said, 
Oh yeah, yeah. They would they would go after somebody for that. They'd probably like hack your computer and put like kiddie porn on your computer, you know, to like frame you or whatever. And I was like, he he was like sort of talking about this sort of conspiratorial thing that like state actors would do. And he wasn't. It was a joke, but not entirely a joke. It was just sort of like if you would think that in the first place, then you've got to recognize that there are people out there who do think that way and kind of operate that way, and that there's chicanery in different aspects. But it's like he wouldn't go there in his own work or, or want to look at it. It's just kind of like a split personality in the way it's like a, the dualism of our own system where it's like this dictatorship uh, with a democracy facade. And it kind of is in the minds of political scientists too. It's really, there's a whole, you could do some sociological studies on political science and denial that would be pretty illuminating. Maybe even you could go into psychology and how people can function that way. Cause it's really something. I like my straight laced professors to be closeted true and on listeners. That's how you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that, that guy, Matt DeHart, who was the whistleblower on the CIA allegedly being involved in the, the so-called anthrax, anthrax attacks. That's what he said happened to him with his computer. I mean, uh, I, there is a historical precedent for these things that make you ask some serious questions. But uh, I mean, there's so much more we could say, Aaron, but wrapping up, this part of the episode. Of course, we will talk about many of these other topics later in the series, but wrapping up this part, you were talking about a lot of the weaknesses of political science and in general, the social sciences and this very, you know, neoliberal capitalist framework that they operate in. We, one of the, de the uh, debates that we've been discussing that happened within the social sciences is this age old debate between structure and agency. We're talking about the weaknesses and the strengths of structuralism C. Wright Mills himself dedicated a lot of his intellectual work to, to trying to resolve that, that debate, resolve that conflict between agency and structuralism. Can, can you maybe take us out of this episode here talking about how Mills can enrich our understanding of that debate? I can, and I also have a choice quote from him that I think we'll, I will use at the very end. Uh, because it's it's very relevant and kind of inspiring, which is a, a better way to go out, I think. So this issue of structure and agency, um, there was on Twitter, I did this interview with uh, Will, you know, from Chapo recently, and somebody on Twitter just tagged me in this little tweet and was like, man, that guy's anti-Semitic. And I was like, what the, you know, what are you getting at here? What are, what are you saying? And he's like, well, you're, you're trying to say that, that, people like the Rockefellers are in control and that's kind of analogous to the protocols of the elders of Zion or something. You know, just like, like, that is, that is very, that is a stupid tweet. Okay. Like I have identified your stupid tweet and I have notified you of your status. And that's all I really want to say about it. Cause it was like so ridiculous, but it's the actual, the, the superstructural arguments are uh, that, that basically no one really has any responsibility. This is what Mills is talking about. He talks about this as an ideal type of history, either all of history has drift or all of it is conspiracy. And there are some people on the left who think it's the sophisticated position to say that really there's, it's not a matter of people in, in charge. It's just sort of structure is overdetermining. And if you're looking at like people doing this and people doing that, that's kind of unsophisticated. And that's kind of like a conspiracy theory of history. And it's not, it's not the way to be. But what Mills was saying is that you can't say that everything is all, you know, a compact conspiracy of like the Illuminati or something like that. And you can't say that it's all, you know, fate and drift because there are people that have decisions, decisions in making power. And so what he tried to do was illuminate the power structure and then look at how power structures in different times can give certain groups of people lots of agency. So structure and agency are related. The social structure gives Jeff Bezos a lot more agency because of his position in this social structure than, you know, uh, working people in America. This is pretty obvious, right? We do understand this. Like people, it'd be hard to argue against this position. People in power, uh, in powerful positions in our hierarchical society have a lot of agency and they can overcome collective action problems that other people can't overcome. Okay. Like uh, poor working people try to organize together. Maybe if they're very lucky, and they bust their asses, they can unionize, you know, an Amazon shop, right? But the powerful, they can buy newspapers, they can create the Council on Foreign Relations 
to bend foreign policy to their will. Um, they are able to act uh, with power. And as Mills said, we know powerful decisions are being made, but we aren't making any. Okay. Now, the structural idea today that prevails um, is that is there are some people that would want to acknowledge like the criminality of the CIA or something, but then they would still try to say that like, well, it's, it's more like just an algorithm that runs everything or it's just over, which is, but they, but that's a nonsensical kind of statement. You know that there's not literally a Borg running things that's like doing everything. Okay. That, that makes all the decisions. You still have to have people in charge of organizations that have the power to make decisions. And we need to find out who those people are. Elites have agency uh, that's determined by structural factors. So the, 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 the per, Michael Parenti, really brilliant on this issue, he wrote, um, the alternative is to believe that the powerful and the privileged are somnambulists who move about oblivious to questions of power and privilege, that they always tell us the truth and have nothing to hide, even when they hide so much, that although most of us, ordinary people might consciously try to pursue our own interests, wealthy elites do not, that when those at the top employ force and violence around the world, it is only for the laudable reasons that they profess, that when they arm, train, and finance covert actions in numerous countries and then fail to acknowledge their role in such deeds, it is because of oversight or forgetfulness or perhaps modesty, and that it is merely a coincidence how the policies of the national security state so consistently serve the interests of the transnational corporations and the capital accumulation system throughout the world. And this is a great encapsulation of this. This is why people like Peter Dell Scott and people like Michael Parenti uh, were carrying the torch for people like C. Wright Mills, even though Parenti was more of an avowed Marxist than Mills. It's a very similar perspective. Parenti never fell into that structuralist business because if you fall into the super structuralist camp, then there's really no responsibility for anything. Okay. Like it's basically like, oh, you just have to throw up your hands and say nothing is, is nobody is responsible for anything. There's not much you can do about it. Now, these organizations and people might be so powerful that there isn't much that we can do about them. And they might be so hidden that we don't really know who is making all these decisions all the time. But we have to recognize that people are making these decisions and that if we really want to understand our true history instead of this counterfeit history that we've been given, eventually we're going to want to come to, come to terms with the amount of secrecy and criminality uh, that has characterized the U.S. empire. And some sort of truth and reconciliation process, even if you had amnesty across the board, just to try to move forward and clear the slate someday, maybe if there's a reckoning with the fall of the U.S. empire, it could happen. Um, but we need to recognize that there are people and organizations and interests that have responsibility and that have a lot of agency. And they have exercised this agency uh, to the detriment of human civilization, up to and including bringing us to uh, the brink of catastrophe. Uh, whether through global warming or through nuclear annihilation or through the, the massive economic inequality. Uh, so this is, we, we need to look at this and not embrace this kind of structuralism, the pseudo sophisticated position that nobody's really in charge. Nobody's really responsible because this is nonsense. Ultimately you are talking about people uh, and people making decisions on certain bases and so on and so forth. And that's what we need to, to try to figure out. <clears throat> so, if I can close here as a, what should we do about this kind of a thing? Uh, this is what C. Wright Mills listed as master tasks for intellectuals. One, to define the reality of the human condition and to make our definitions public. Two, to confront the new facts of history making in our time and their meaning for the problem of political responsibility. Three, continually to investigate the causes of war and among them to locate the decisions and defaults of elite circles. Four, to release the human imagination to explore all the alternatives now open to the human community by transcending both the mere exhortation of grand principle and the mere opportunist reaction. Five, to demand full information of relevance to human destiny and the end of decisions made in irresponsible secrecy. Six, to cease being the intellectual dupes of political patrioteers. And I read this pretty early in this whole journey of mine through, uh, you know, enrolling in graduate school and writing this book and everything else. And I think that this is one of the best sort of encapsulations of what people should be doing. 
And to the extent that people abandon this, this is a, a serious default, something we should remedy. Um, the idea that we need all the, ev the relevant information to human history is obviously so much more important now than it was under Mills. We have so many events that have, that have accumulated to the point that we have a counterfeit history. And this is what Mills was warning us about and cautioning against and urging us to be, to be vigilant in confronting. And uh, I, I think that's why his work is still really relevant today. And that's why I'm happy we spent two episodes talking about the man and his uh, monumental scholarship. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. We will be exploring a lot of these very similar topics about power and elites and secrecy and covert operations and imperialism and, and corporate interests and all of that in this series, Empire and the Deep State. This is, of course, based on the book American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by Aaron Good. I'm Ben Norton. We're joined by Seamus McGinnis, the co-host and producer and if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash American Exception. You can also go to patreon.com slash Multipolarista. This is a joint production. And we'll see you all in many more episodes as we continue to explore the crimes of the U.S. Empire and Deep State. And we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot for joining us. Mm -hmm.